The sixth annual Bioceuticals Research Symposium will be held in Melbourne on the 20th to the 22nd of April, 2018. For more information, please click on the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today from, I'm going to say it with chagrin, sunny Brisbane, because it's pouring down here in Sydney, is Emrys Goldsworthy. Emrys is the Director of Athletic and Physical Health. He completed a Bachelor degree in Health Science, Musculoskeletal Therapy, which he attained at the Endeavour College of Natural Health. He's also gained a Master's degree in Sports Coaching, focusing on Classical Ballet Coaching at Griffith University. He's been a lecturer since 2008 and currently holds the position of Senior Lecturer of the Department of Musculoskeletal Therapy at Endeavour College of Natural Health. Emrys' interest in the body began while he was a professional classical ballet and contemporary dancer. He's a graduate of the Australian Conservatoire of Ballet, which led to a career in the Royal New Zealand Ballet, performing several soloist roles and touring the world with the company. Emrys has a unique approach in the examination and treatment of physical impairments. And today we're talking about another one that I am totally ignorant on, and that's photobiomodulation. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Emrys, how are you? Very good, how are you doing? I'm good. Now I've got to say, you are expert in these topics and I go, huh? (laughs) So, so I guess, yeah, let's start start off. What is photobiomodulation? Well, uh, it's a term that's now been used in the literature far more often, and it's the most accurate term. And sometimes you'll hear it being used, um, or you'll see other words for it, cold laser or low-level laser, but uh, the most accurate term is photobiomodulation. And essentially what it is is light therapy uh, that has a modulatory effect on the bodily tissues, and it's either using some form of LED device or a laser device. Uh, it ranges in colours, so depending on what the aim of the treatment in the study is, it uses mainly a red or a near-infrared spectrum. There are other colours that are used, but they're the main ones. And the lasers are normally somewhere between 100 and 500 milliwatts. And these are known as 3B lasers as opposed to 4 lasers, which are used in surgery, although used sometimes clinically. Right. So 4 lasers. Now, they're mm. the ones that burn. Is that right? Burn, yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. So they're the ones used in a surgical application normally. Yeah, and I mean, that, that the wattage on those are much higher, and, uh, and higher doesn't mean better therapeutically. It just depends on what the aim is. Yeah, that's right, because they're used in, like, um, tattoo removal, certain scarring, mm-hmm. but also other surgeries as well, correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So photobiomodulation using a lower light, le- uh, lower correct. level yeah. light laser Hey, um, yeah. <laughs> where where does it originate from? Uh, how far, like, how, how have back? we come? Yeah, yeah, how far back? Well, it kind of happened by mistake. So the, the, the most well-known is in 1967, a man called Andre Nesta from Hungary. He's a scientist working with um, rats and mice on basically trying to induce cancer with lasers. So he was trying to induce cancer with lasers after the invention a few years prior. 
And so what he would do is he would shave the mice and then irradiate them with, uh, he had used a ruby laser, which is a red spectrum laser. And kind of had a bit of a surprise. And that was that, firstly, no cancer was, um, no cancer occurred. But the treatment group using the laser, their hair grew back much faster. So he noticed that there was some kind of biomodulation effect. And that's when everyone started thinking about, oh, maybe lasers could be used therapeutically. So the hair grew back faster? Faster. Yeah, so the laser light induced some kind of change in the, in the skin, inducing mm. faster grow back, yeah. Um, that exact mechanism has been researched as well. It's mm. not my area of expertise, but no. again, it's probably more the, um, the beauty industry. Yeah. Okay, so those are dermal applications, and, and one Correct. would expect... You know, you shine a light on the dermis and you depending on what's happening on the dermal layer within the dermal layers, one might hope for a therapeutic effect. But what mm. about deeper stuff? Well, yeah. So the, I'll, I'll explain the different types of approaches. There's, there's mainly two different ways of approaching low-level laser or photomyomodulation. Mm. Um, one is more of a healing effect. Okay. So that could be deeper tissues that need healing. could be like a muscle strain. Um, or it could be more superficial. It could be a skin breakage or a wound, okay? And that uses more of a lower dose than what we'd call analgesic um, approach. Uh-huh. And so those are used generally somewhere around three joules per centimeter square. That's the term we use in, in laser. Um, and it generally uses a red light spectrum. And that effect is slightly different. I'll, I'll go through that in a sec. But the other one is an anti-nociceptive effect or more generally used analgesic effect. And that uses a much higher dose six plus joules per centimeter square. It just depends on the laser that you're using. Yeah. And some of them have different um, apertures, so you just need to, to know um, the brand's um, methods. And that generally will use a near-infrared spectrum. Not always, but generally. And so if you're talking about red light, you're, you're not going to get as deep. Generally speaking, red light doesn't go uh, as deep as near-infrared. So right. depending on the level you're trying to treat, you'll sort of pick and choose but they have different uh, different effects on the body. So as I said, the red is better for healing and the near-infrared is better for analgesic, but there is a bit of a sweet spot between the two. Okay, so let's go into the, these applications because I'm just, my mind's boggling here about applications with regards to anything from a sports injury to chronic pain to, um, yep. oh, gosh, mucosal injury, Um Take yep. us through what the applications of photobiomodulation are. And indeed, do you call it PBM as, a, as an acronym? Um, PBM, photobiomodulation, is fine. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's PBMT. Just PBMT, gotcha. Yeah. Great. None of, they're all pretty similar. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. So generally speaking, I work in a musculoskeletal realm. Okay. So a lot of the conditions that I treat are in that in that bracket. Mm. So we'll talk about that first. Firstly, the best application I find in, in regards to it being better than most other things is chronic pain. Right. So, And when I talk about chronic pain, I don't just mean generalized pain anywhere. I mean fibromyalgia syndrome, for example, non-specific lower back pain, um, knee or hip osteoarthritis, lower back, lower back osteoarthritis as well, um, chronic neck pain. These all respond well. And I find that... Um, Patients that maybe they've had other types of therapies like manipulation or things that, or mobilization or exercise, they've, they've not responded, they respond well to this. 
That's very interesting to see. And, and I think that's in part because a lot of them are guarding, guarding the way they move, um, and right. then they've got a bit of localized muscle tightening in the area of pain. Yeah. And so as this actually works particularly well on muscles, all right, because although a lot of these conditions aren't strictly muscle pain, and we know that there's a lot of centrally driven mechanisms that cause chronic pain, uh, but you can respect that a lot of their pain is myofascial. So in regards to that, a lot of myofascial pain is actually induced by effects, uh, ischemic effects within the muscle. So you get this buildup of hydrogen ions as an effect of reduced oxygenation of the blood, oxygenation of the muscle due to reduced blood flow to the muscle. Yeah, and that can be in part due to the muscle being very tight, and the sort of onflow effect from that. So the the laser itself works really well at restoring ATP levels to those those myocytes, and the net effect of that is of course um, relax, relaxing the muscle or returning it to normal tone. And then you you improve the blood flow and things return to normal. I mean they don't they may not stay that way because of centrally driven mechanisms. But that's mm. why you do additional points on the body and you consider other lifestyle factors within a functional medicine um, sort of workup. Yeah. And other things that work really well. Uh, it really works well for neuropathic pain. So uh, it might be something, for, for example, like carpal tunnel syndrome. Okay, I, I've had great success with that. And in the research, they've had some, particularly recently, they've had some really good results uh, with spinal cord injury. Uh-huh. And this is really exciting. So they're using lasers on the spinal level where the injuries occurred. Yep. And what they've found is that just so below that level, in the lower limb maybe, for example, where, wherever the level is that's been injured, uh, they're getting improved muscle activity. So... They're basically, their power is getting better, their mobility is improving. And there's really good signs that this could be a potential treatment in the future. Uh, there's still room to move, room to go with that, in that they need to figure out uh, the best approach, uh, whether they need to do other areas or um, less intensity or more intensity, but we're finding really good results there. What, are, what about um, things like phantom limb pain? Phantom limb. Okay. This is a bit obscure, but... I will tell you that uh, there could be potential there. So because that is a brain-related problem, there's also some things going on at the stump. So there is some changes in that actual Mm. um, uh, limb. And you can laser at that point, and that does help. Uh, I've used it on people with phantom limb before. It's not a common patient you see in the clinic, but it does work quite well. But because there are so many other brain-related components to that condition, I've found that a therapy called transcranial laser is worth trialling as well, uh-huh. and that's something we can talk about. Right. Yeah. And that would, um, would, that would be applicable also to things like um, complex regional pain syndrome? Would that be right? Indeed. That's a very gotcha. difficult one to treat. I'll bet, yeah. I, I find that trying to affect sympathetic, sympathetic nervous system as well is worth worth it in that, mm. uh, worth um, treating in that, and also um, brain as well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I took you onto a tangent there. <laughs> what else can we use photobiomodulation okay. for? So I'll, I'll just go through some other pain-related conditions. Mm. So osteoarthritis, I've talked about that, but that's, that's, a, that's a very um, common one we see and a very, I find very successful. Um, meniscus um, damage pathologies relating to meniscus, lower back pain, as I've already mentioned, disc pathologies, the disc pathologies, a lot of people 
uh, have pain and they attribute it to disc pathology, although you know the research shows that a lot of people already have disc pathologies with no pain. Um, but clinically, if that's their pain, if that's their source of pain, which we can attribute to it sometimes, uh, it's very successful because we can actually get the laser to hit the disc itself. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So then you have muscle strains and ligament sprains, things like sports injuries and things like that. And they're sort of approached differently because those ones I'm not really trying to reduce the pain per se. I'm trying to reduce the inflammation or induce healing, really. Okay, so a lot of people will say in the literature, uh, low-level laser or a photobiomodulation is anti-inflammatory. But what they really mean is it's, it sort of facilitates healing. Okay, and that's sort of what the mechanism is. It's more of a facilitation of healing. We can chat about those mechanisms. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So wow. I use that with um, vagus nerve stimulation, which yeah. I've talked about previously. Yes. Because, uh, because TNF-alpha is a real problem with rheumatoid arthritis, a systemic approach with vagus nerve stimulation is appropriate with some localized um, photobiomodulation of the joints affected. Right. Very helpful there. That's a long-term treatment. We do see improvements over time, and we find that because we're not trying to cure the condition per se, uh, we're just trying to get them managed into the point where they can they can do more in their life. And then we, we really promote that. We get them to do more and more activity as long as they're pain-free, and we find it gives them more confidence. Uh, other ones that a lot of people don't know about is things like lymphedema. You can actually use uh-huh. photobiomodulation on lymph glands yeah. and improve the, uh, the flow through there. And uh, some other ones like wound healing on the skin. I, I do it also for skin conditions like psoriasis, and I found it to be very helpful there. Even though it's not a wound, um, I found that the inflammation on the skin with psoriasis, hmm. it seems to respond quite well. I mean, it's a long-term treatment. It's something that you have to uh, work on week by week for a few months, a few months, but definitely worth, uh, worth trialing if you haven't um, had success elsewhere. I've got this thing in my mind that, you know, a laser is this point of light that you direct onto one very small area, but you're mm. talking about six, six plus joules per centimetre squared. How broad is the spread of the laser and it doesn't that contradict what a laser is? No, well, a laser is, is small, so it's, it's just how much density of, of power is in that spot. Gotcha. Okay, so, and that's about how long it's been placed on that spot. Okay. And so you might get a rate of flow of joules at whatever per second, yeah. uh, but it's because you've held it there for that long that you get that much density. Right. Okay. Now, other devices such as LED clusters, which you'll see a lot of, uh, they, are, they are quite broad. They're quite big and they can cover a broader area. And of course, they're more so for superficial tissues, as I've already stated, yeah. uh, because they don't penetrate as deep. So they're used generally more in wound healing. But I do use it for lower back. Uh, I do find it helps, particularly if you increase the joules per centimetre square. Okay. Um, now, one of the other things that's going through my brain here is that you, you mentioned its use with rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis. Mm. They are not predominantly, but they, you know, mainly, I'm going to say the word mainly, involve b- the bone as, a, as the inflamed tissue or joints. Mm as the inflamed yep. tissue. But we're talking about the use of laser, particularly working on the muscle. Do you see direct action on the, on the bone yep. itself? So there is bone effects as well. So subchondral bone, uh, you can induce 
wow. repair in subchondral bone. Wow, wow. Now, there's a whole raft of studies being done very recently and in the past, but most recently showing sort of facilitation of mesenchymal stem cells. Wow. And, and that's, that's helpful in that, although mostly for wound and uh, muscle repair, but you actually get a raft of different stem cells activated yeah. when, you do, when you're applying it to, say, a long bone where uh, the stem cells are present. So you, if you're, let's just say, you're applying it to the knee for osteoarthritis of the mm-hmm. knee, you can direct it towards subchondral bone and you can get a really positive effect on pain relating to that subchondral bone, but you can also induce healing effects. Now, that's, that's going to be controversial, but you because most people haven't heard of that. Yeah. But the research is there, and it's, it's quite compelling. I'm so amazed. I, I do that currently, mm. and I use a raft of different things to sort of induce subchondral changes and uh, cartilage changes as well. Uh, and, I, and it takes time. You know, these aren't overnight changes. They do take months. Right. And I still think nutrition plays a big role in activity. Yeah, sure. So when you're looking at these therapies, when you're looking at bang for buck and, and you know, mm. what you've got to do to put up with pain and, you know, trying to get an effect um, in your patients so that they'll continue with a therapy, how do you go with, with motivating your patients to continue on a longer-term therapy given that they're in pain now and they want relief now? Do you, do you employ it as mm. just part of an overall therapy approach? Uh, so within my own methodology, I like to look at everything. I don't, I don't want them to come back and say, I didn't change. Mm. And, and part of that is understanding what the mechanisms that are bringing about their pain and sort of maintaining their pain, you know, inflammatory, systemic inflammatory factors, mm. oxidative stress, you know, environmental factors. And there can be a lot of different things, stresses. Um, you know, you'll have patients that don't sleep properly. And I, I know that potentially may not get better uh, until that sleep pattern is, has improved. Yeah. And so a lot of these things I, I know can get in the way. And so I make sure I address them. And, and most of the time, that's, that leads to much better outcomes. I think that's where a lot of other clinicians, particularly in the conventional world, they don't look at how well you sleep when you're dealing with osteoarthritis. They don't see the relevance of that, even though most of the studies will show when they look at other factors sleep problems come all, up all the time. Mm. So the stress, you know, there's got to be a reason for that. And they, and they have systemic effects, of course, as we all know. And so I tend to work on that as well. Now, most of the time, patients will respond immediately, within a day or within 10 minutes or straight away. That's wow. always helpful to give them confidence in the therapy. I mean, I, I, will, I always... Um, cannot believe sometimes how fast it works. Wow. And I get shocked. I still get shocked to this day. I've been using it for years now. And, you know, I'll, I might want to mobilize a neck, you know, put pressure through the neck to try to get a joint to move. And I'm putting a lot of force in there and I'm expecting it to change mm. quite a lot. Mm. But I might put a laser on for 30 seconds and it changes it more. And I go, oh, just, Wow-y. I just can't believe it. And that, that's a lot of patients. It's the majority of patients that res- you know respond that quickly. Yeah. yeah. What about you know common uh, common sports injuries or let's call them sports injuries? Um, you know mm-hmm. the TF um, TFL tensei fasciolate and um, you know bursitis uh, oh, bursitis. issues. Yeah. Okay. So we see uh, a lot of bursitis. So the main types of bursitis we see is trochanteric. Mm-hmm. So that's on the outside of the hip. Yep. 
and um, subacromial bursitis. That's in the shoulder. Yep. Both respond very, very well, uh, particularly if they're acute bursitis. Bursal changes are actually quite common and can be very I mean, many commonly asymptomatic. Yeah. So I try not to be too pathoanatomical, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't want to assume it's that tissue. I go by what the patient feels and where the pain location is. Mm. The scan might show trochanteric bursitis, but their pain is at their gluteus medius tendon. So I'd rather right. affect that. Right. So in addition to that, though, we always, the protocol with low-level laser and photobiomodulation is to treat the spinal levels as well because you, when you're doing analgesic laser, you have to, you're creating essentially a neural blockade. Uh, the raft of effects occur within the, the nociceptor, mm. and that can be done at the end organ site, which is the receptor site in the skin and in the muscle tissue or the uh, tendon tissue, whatever. Or it can happen at the dorsal root ganglion in the spinal cord, the spinal right. level. Yep. Uh, so you do both because you can affect both at both sides, both ends of the, the neuron. And so, yeah, so things like the situs, the shoulder and of, end of the hip, they're all really relevant because but I work in a manual therapy and exercise world. I need to make sure that I've addressed their movement problems as well. And mm. many people don't move properly and it leads to pain. It leads to mechanical overload of bodily tissues and then, and then degeneration or whatever it is. Yeah, so I, I do make sure that I'm not just using laser, but I'm also doing a raft of other things to make sure that true causes underlying are addressed. And I've got to say, coming from a, um, a, a ballet background, yeah. who are notorious for damaging their bodies and continuing to exercise throughout that, mm, <laughs> do you, have you learned hard lessons from that history to say, I really should be looking after my body and teaching your patients to do the same? Like, this is what most people yeah. will do and this is what you should do. Yeah. So, I mean, I've had, I had so many injuries as a dancer. <laughs> Everything from... Why does that not surprise me? <laughs> bilateral Osgood Schlatter's disease, and that was very late. I should have had that in a as a teenager, but I yeah. had it in my 20s. Right. Um, not even sure how that was possible, but it was diagnosed. I had so many different things, and I, I, I used pain medication to get me through. Yeah. And, and I remember that one day that I started getting stomach cramps, and uh, I was on, uh, I think it was some kind of NSAID. Mm. And I was like, okay, I really got to stop this. And, and, and all dancers are the same. We just rely upon pain medication. Yeah, and right. So, yeah, I do have to really try to change the way people think about pain and uh, remember that, you know, if you're a tendinopathy and you're taking NSAID, you can inhibit healing. Yes, really and this can. is something that most and, people don't know about. Yeah. And I was never told that, mm. you know, I was just told, just take this, you just get through the season and, and that was it. Mm. And I think people are, are getting a bit wiser these days. So because of social media and, and a lot of posts that people put up again, but I think the, the idea that NSAIDs inhibit uh, collagen synthesis is not well known. Yeah. So I think I try to educate people, but yeah, sometimes their doctor tells them otherwise. So it's hard. I'm waiting for the day that, like, it really concerns me about the, the modern day marketing of NSAIDs to children. And mm. I'm waiting for the day Terrible. that, oh, lo and behold, now we're seeing ulceration in kids. I agree. Mm. I mean, that's the good, the good thing about low, while you're on children, that re kids respond amazingly well to low-level laser or photobiomodulation because one thing... They don't feel it, which is great when you're a kid. Right. You know. Yeah. Uh, one thing that the kids hate is, is 
guy needling, which I used to do a lot of, and I still do for yep. certain cases, but uh, it lasers kind of replaced, uh, as in re- replaced um, the, the dry needling. Uh, and yeah, they they bloody love it. They, they anything from an, an ankle sprain to a to a bit of bone bruising, and I mean, I remember uh, I had a cut patient about a few months back where she had um, tibial bone bruising. Hmm. We thought it was uh, potentially a fracture or something like that, but it was just bone bruising, which was great. And literally, she couldn't bend her knee past nine degrees uh, in deflection. Mm. And within that one session, she gained 30 degrees knee flexion. Wow. I mean, I, I know that that's partly to do with the analgesic effects, but she retained that. So kids respond really, really well. And I think in part, it's because they, you know, there's there's such a different effect with kids. You know, I find that they, the placebo effect just works differently with them. I yeah. just don't think they they know what's going on. But there maybe there's a bit more of a placebo effect with a laser. I'm not sure because I think it's really cool. Mm. And sometimes I'll I'll make the lights dimmer and they'll feel the lights coming out of the out of the probe. Yeah, um, the laser probe, and they find that pretty cool. But that's <laughs> the side note. What you said there is that and this is very common with physical or manual therapies, is that you feel great during this session. I mean, mm. how many how many times have you been to a physio or a chiro and you've had this sort of thing that feels great during the session, particularly, for instance, while a, a physio might be supporting the um, the your vertebral facets while you're in rotation of your neck. feels great. Yeah. No worries. Go home. Two hours mm. later, and there it is again. Yeah. Um, so yeah. when you're seeing a continued positive response from this um that's telling that's a that's telling a big tale that one that's that's really Mm. saying this is working on a different level that's right i think you 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 need to consider all things like i said the way people move is has a big um, effect on their pain levels yeah so i i do have a lot of a big part of my treatment is education about how they're moving and so if I can change that in that first session, I can see that they they understand that they're guarding or they're they're changing the way they move, and that's negatively affecting their pain levels. Mm. Then I know that they're going to get a good result that's long term. That may even get better and better and better over the course of a few days because of that change. Right. The sometimes the low level laser may work more as a doorway to that. It may not be the cure in itself, mm. but it may be a doorway. Yeah. In order for them to move better. Gotcha. Because movement really is the key in a lot of cases to improvement. Um, but they're being told, oh, you're damaged. You've got the back of an 80-year-old. Or yeah. you've got, you know, you're bone on bone. You hear that all the time. Yeah. It's, it's infuriating for me because the research doesn't add up. When you, when you, when you put those, that information to a patient, you say, you know, uh, pain levels uh, in knee osteoarthritis don't correlate with levels of damage seen on a scan. And they, it doesn't relate to them because they've already been told it's bone on bone. Right. And, you know, they need a replacement. So it's about educating them and also changing the way they think about their pain. I think that's really important as yes. well. I know that's not strictly laser, but you, you have to have a multimodal approach, I think, yeah. with pain. Yeah. Um, so two questions that have sprouted in my mind. Firstly, you mentioned the sprained ankle, the acute, oh, my God, this hurts. Yeah. You can get resolution in healing, bruising edema? Yeah. Yeah. So normally what we'll see, this is, there's a lot of conjecture uh, about how to approach some things like sprains because you can have an anti-inflammatory effect. You can have an analgesic effect, right? And you can try to do both and that does work. Mm. But 
sometimes the uh, analgesic effect will have an effect on the levels of substance P and CGRP, and, and these substances are very um, that one is vasoactive and one is um, very sort of uh, reduces the threshold of nociceptors. So it'll change the way they move yep. when you reduce their pain. So sometimes reducing their pain changes the way they move and, the, and making them move more normally actually helps them heal faster. So there's that. Ah. Uh, uh. Yeah. Depends how you look at it. Yeah. You know, and I, I do still see reduction in swelling within the session every time. Wow. But you see that with acupuncture as well, and you see that with dry needling. You see that with a lot of other therapies. Yeah. But you definitely see it with laser as well, and it's not better. So what I try to do with those is I do try to get them back as regularly as possible within that first week. Depends on how severe it is and depends on how much it's going to bother them, what they do. If right. it's a dancer, for example, you know, and they need to get back quickly, they're coming every day almost. Gotcha. Every two days maybe. Depends what they can do. And they, it's about getting them back as quickly as possible. And so we've seen, you know, a sprained ankle that might take um, two weeks or three weeks, they will return within a week. The thing that's going off in my head is, you know, your, your typical footballer that says, get me back out on the field, coach. So they hit them with a steroid injection, mm. get them out. Nothing's healed. They've just got no pain and no inflammation. They then yeah. go and you've got a worse um, damaged um, tissue there to that will take so much longer to heal because you're now stressing it. This actually resolves the wound. Is that right? Yeah. So it induces a healing effect. So the body, mm. you know, it's, it's all a very endogenous effect. You know, you're indu- you're creating a, a biomodulatory effect. Yeah. You know, as like I said, so the body then responds to that. You know, uh, if you put a steroid in, you 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 know, you're you're basically just trying to mask it. Yes. It doesn't really. If it, you know, as we've already said, it's going to inhibit potentially the yeah. healing effects. Yeah. So, yeah, great short term, but what about long term? And I think that's the same with a lot of different conditions. You know, people only really concern themselves with the short term mm. and don't really realize that long term, the research shows most, most of the time with these steroid injections, particularly with degenerative tendons or um, alike, you know, it's not a great outcome. No. So, but particularly yeah, if I they're think, used too regularly and you. You know, oh yeah, and gut, you gut problems, cardiovascular issues, all sorts of issues. Yeah, I know, but they don't. A lot of them aren't aware of that, and I've I've told them the risks, and they 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 were never told. Yeah. So, or they were, and they just forget. Yeah. But yeah. I don't think they realise the enormity of them. What about uh, objective results? You know, when you're looking at X-rays and things like that. You know, have you ever seen things like resolution of osteophytes? In a you know lower back pain, osteoarthritis. Um, have you ever seen this sort of effect occurring? Okay, so I'll just tell you the way I use scans. I used to use scans all the time. Mm. So I really concern myself a lot with them. Mm. Um, but because uh, clinical results don't generally correlate well with um, results seen in scans, right? You you find it very difficult to to want to use them, partly because of that, but also because it's expensive to keep scanning patients. Yep. And if it's a radiology, instead of say it's x-ray, I don't want to keep irradiating them for you know, health reasons. Mm. Um, MRIs are expensive as, a, as an alternative. If it's a soft tissue lesion, I guess we have seen that. We've seen uh, tendon healing and tendon collagen synthesis increasing and reduced um, neo-vessels. So there's within a lot of chronic tendinopathies you see um, vessel growth into the tendon and see a retraction of those quite commonly. I don't always do that 
because most of the time uh, the treatment effect has already occurred and to go and get the scan after that seems irrelevant Pointless, to the yeah. patient. Yeah. Yeah. But I really, I don't use scans as much as I used to unless it's indicated. The only time I'd use it for, say, lower back pain is when there's gross neurological changes in the lower limb uh, or they're in extreme pain or I'm suspecting a fracture. Um, but other right. than that, I don't. I don't worry too much. Right. And you mentioned wound healing before. Um, one of the references I found, and, I, and forgive again my ignorance on this, it was just the title, The Effects of Photobiomodulation Therapy on Staphylococcus aureus Infected Surgical Wounds in Diabetic Rats. Now, yeah. I know it's a rat study, I get it, but what? How's this working? There's meant to be some kind of bacteria side effect of a low-level laser mm. uh, photobiomodulation. How that works, I'm not aware. I'm not sure. And I don't think it's been well-established yet. Right. But it could be working, you know, potentially on chromophoric cells that are within the bacteria. They absorb it and inhibits them in some way. Not really sure. But we see that diabetic ulcers, you know, wounds that just don't heal with diabetes, they start to heal when nothing else has helped. Gotcha. It does take you know, weeks and months, but they're improving every time. So if we're just talking about wound healing, that's one thing. If we're talking about infection, that's another. And I think I don't personally use it for infection, and uh, it's it's a new field, mm. I think. But bacteria side effect of it is potential. Um, its effect, antiviral effect has been pretty much squashed. Right. Um, but there are potential other ways of modulating the immune system with low-level laser, and that's being explored. So that might be another way of, of affecting viruses. But when it comes to bacteria, yeah, I think it's just a bacteria side effect. Okay. But I'm not sure how. And so when you're talking about directing it to the meniscal layer or something like that, how do you aim the – I'm going to – do I say the word probe? How, how do you mm, aim the probe. laser? How do you aim it? Mm. Okay, so you put the, the patient's leg in a particular position that allows the opening of the joint. And so if the, you're talking about the meniscus of the mm, knee, yeah? Yep. So the meniscus, uh, it, you're basically able to access it from the front and move it from the side. You can trial it from the back, but I'm generally aiming from the front and, and from the side right. along the joint line. So, yeah, you, you can penetrate it to the levels of that you need required for um, therapeutic effects. And you'll generally find it's quite tender to touch. So that's another area you'll right. try to affect as gotcha. well. Gotcha. So I've got to ask now, you know, like you come up with these things and you blow my mind. You did this with the vagal nerve stimulation and I was like oh, totally on another wavelength. Totally blew my mind as to the therapeutic effects, the therapeutic um, potential of, of using um, vagal nerve stimulation in so many different areas. How do prakis learn about photobiomodulation? And I've got to add vagal nerve stimulation into this because what, what you opened up my mind for was so broad. Mm. And they're really, like I was just, as I say, I was, my mind was blown away by the evidence behind these sorts of things. So how can prakis access resources or education? Uh, so let's start with, well, I'll start with vagal nerve stimulation. Mm. I recently did a seminar in Sydney, um, which was run uh, about a month ago. Yeah. It's quite successful. We're doing another one in Brisbane, and I'm hoping to do another one in Melbourne, and I'll, I'll um, place my new website yeah. um, on the page. Yeah, great. And 
follow that. So great, great, great. Go for those. Um, laser is done. It's a, there's a bit of a different thing with laser. So laser is done with particular. Um, you need you need particular licenses to to do education in laser. So the, one of the best providers, the one I use, uh, is Thor Laser. T H O R Laser, and they come back twice a year to Melbourne, and Sydney, and do education um, seminars. So I can highly recommend them. There are others, but I they're the only ones I have experience with, and they've got fantastic resources if you. Um, a learning and uh, need some ongoing support after the seminar. Beautiful. And we, so as you said, we can put those resources, the links up on the FX Medicine yes. website. Yeah, there's just, just so many. I mean, I uh, Thor Laser has a fantastic list of them that you can access through their website. Yeah. Uh, but there are just papers after papers after papers. The amount of osteoarthritis papers, uh, you know, I, I was reading through probably 30 or 30 or 40 plus, you know, there was just ridiculous. So, you know, it's hard to really take one, but there's some really good ones and and I'll put them up there, you know, particularly the ones, the studies that were done properly and with the right parameters. Yes. Brilliant. Okay. So I guess from a responsible point of view, cautions, red flags, when do you go, "Eh -eh," or when do you have to sort of be aware that there might potentially be something more serious or sinister going on? Okay. Well, Usual health history is very, you know, as much is where are you going to pick up red flags, okay? But other than that, I the main, okay, so the most known and, and most important one is to not aim a laser into the eye, okay? Because uh, lasers can affect the retina, um, negatively affect the retina, and but that's predominantly for lasers. But the precaution is still, and the contraindication is still with three B lasers. Uh, so we don't use lasers. There are because you can treat um, retinopathy of the eye um, and macular degeneration of the eye with, with photobiomodulation, wow. you can use LED cluster probes with R- those right. instead. And that's kind of strange, having a big red light over your eye, but has shown very good results. Uh, the, other, the other ones, it's just due to a lack of research, uh, is areas of metastases to cancer. Yep. Um, we don't know what it does. So there have been mixed results in research. Those best are on the side of caution. Uh, the other one is pregnancy. So we don't laser over the developing fetus. Yeah. Um, not because we know it does something, because we don't know what it could do. Right. Uh, sometimes immune people on immune suppression drugs is an issue. We we just we just take that into consideration. Um, photosensitive patients, uh, photosensitive epileptic patients particularly around the eyes, obviously. And, uh, yeah, that's predominantly all you concern yourself. There was some concern with thyroid glands, and but then there's some research showing potentially that thyroid responds positively to laser. So, you know, like a damaged thyroid from Hashimoto's disease. Yeah. And so that's potentially a therapeutic option um, that we look at. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be needed. With ophthalmic use, it, it rather than the laser, you use an LED cluster. Is that yes. right? Gotcha. Yeah, you use an LED, um, like a round-headed LED cluster, mm. um, and usually red light. Yeah, I'm just I'm blown away by the sorts of therapies that you get into. How do you find this yeah. stuff? Oh, <laughs> it's a bit. You know, I, I hear from colleagues that are using it, or I I read about it in research. You know, um, the amount of papers I I scour through, you end up reading about other things, and you, you end up being with like-minded people around you, and 
and they find out things and you know it's kind of like that you end up going oh there's this new treatment and yet you i do always start going nah it sounds sounds rubbish yeah pretty much my starting point for yeah everything. yeah and then i just read about it for a while and just try to build some confidence in it um and a lot of the ways i was like totally on the fence i was like this sounds like rubbish mm. um but no the it was the, the research is pretty damn compelling wow um yeah, I don't. I don't feel like that anymore. Yeah. Um. I think, you know, the VAS studies on on neck pain. That's where you you see the big results. Mm. Neck pain is the one that really has come up trumps in the research, and I think that's just because it was done so prop so well, mm. uh, exactly correct parameters, um, sample size was appropriate, you know, and and the results were great, and they've they've you know basically showing that. Low level laser is almost equivalent to, if not better than an NSAID for neck pain. And, and that's wow. great for us. Yeah. Wow, that's a big and one. So that was a starting point. And then I read further and, you know, there's just a lot. Yep. Yeah. And just, yeah. Are you, are you finding that there's a, a growing, uh, even a groundswell of acceptance with regards to photobiomodulation? Oh, without a doubt. Because there's been a lot of televised, um, a lot of televised oil level laser on you know, channel nine, channel seven, things like that. Right. And they've, it's led to people really searching for it. Yeah. And there's not many people that do it. Um, and if, you know, there's a lot of laser out there that it's kind of, you've got to be careful what you, you use because not all of them um, say what, no, do what they say they do. I'll get a list of different really good providers that oh, brilliant. I know uh, that are used in research. Yeah. And they're the ones you want. I love, I've got to say, I have so much respect for you, the way that you tease apart, you know, what's the BS to the real McCoy sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And you then start to use this in a, a therapeutic way as part of a practice, no magic um, for the benefit no. of patients. I, I love the way that you tease apart and you sort of scarf, start from a skeptical standpoint and then go, does this really work? You're doing a lot of work for the, for the listeners of FX Medicine. Thanks so much. <laughs> That's all right. Um, Oh, I haven't mentioned it yet, but I'll mention it now because of the opportunity. The my biggest excitement about laser is really transcranial laser. Mm. Uh, so transcranial laser is the application of the light over the cranium, and you have to apply quite a lot of joules to get any really onto the cortex. Yeah, but the results for depression in the frontal lobe have been Whoa. fantastic. And wow. you know, we we talked about transcutaneous auricular vagus nerve stimulation mm. for depression last time. Mm. Well, the combination is, to me, it's breathtaking. You know, it can be really quick um, and within the first day they're getting change. Uh, it can take a couple of weeks to get, you know, really big change. But yeah. I found the combination really useful. And so if anyone's in the world of depression or treating mood disorders or they've got to get on top of these things. These are really useful techniques that can be used alongside, say, nutritional interventions or other lifestyle measures. PTSD as well? Yes. Um, well, I mean, I've, I've found a lot of patients that come to see me with depression mm. and they really actually have PTSD. Gotcha. As the, you know, that's sort of the inducer. Um, and, yeah. We've found great results. I do find that it's really good to use other therapies. Well, sometimes it might be hypnotherapy uh, or other types of psychological interventions. But, you know, because sometimes then processing that, those memories is really important as well. Yeah. But yes, uh, great results. Um, their mood improves. I find that because the vagus nerve stimulation, 
stimulation is improving the brain-derived neurotrophic factor levels. And at the same time, the ATP levels are going up in their frontal cortex due to the laser. It's just this perfect combination, yeah. you know, for, for neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. So that's ideal for depression. Emrys Goldsworthy, thank you once again for taking me and educating me, let alone our learner, our listeners, um, on a new therapy which it just has so so broad uh, uh, an effect. Um, you can use it in so many different conditions. It's quite amazing, absolutely quite amazing. Thanks so much. No problem. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.